My name is Mike, and this is The Goods. On this show, we go inside the minds of designers of all kinds. You'll discover their methods, mindset, and how you can use their insights to bring your ideas to life. Today, you'll meet Steve Shuffle, the co-founder of Whimsical, a workspace where you can visualize your ideas as soon as you have them. Steve's a designer and a lifelong learner who's passionate about craftsmanship, remote work, and building a future you want to live in. In our conversation, we explore how Whimsical became profitable, the secret behind their growth, how Steve and the team benefit from remote work, and if you make it all the way to the end, Steve has an Easter egg for you to play with. So settle in and listen out for that. This is one of the most in-depth interviews of the goods yet, and it's a real privilege for me to have this conversation and share Steve's story. So without further delay, I hope you enjoy the behind the scenes process of designing a software startup with Steve of Whimsical. Hey, Steve, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much. I want to kick off at the very beginning and talk a little bit about how you discovered design, like what drew you into design itself? Yeah, I actually came into design rather late and it was almost accidental. I was back in college and uh, I was a couple years in and I was playing lacrosse and pretty focused on that. And I was doing an English major and uh, hadn't really done much at all around design. And I had a teammate just kind of out of the blue mention he was doing a drawing class to a few of us. And he was like, you know, might sound silly to some of you guys, but anybody want to join me? And I think I'd taken like a mandatory class a number of years back and, and had generally good memories from that. And so I was like, yeah, like uh, I'm down. And, um, what I quickly realized was that everything in the art department was way more interesting and fun to me is than everything else that I had been taking previously. And it kind of opened up this whole new direction for me. And, um, and I really just basically started this exploration process, uh, into more visual, uh, fields. Got it. Is that was that a um, uh, like a life drawing class that you attended, or was it something else? It was it was really basic. I think it was like an intro, um, just basic basic drawing, and but it got me hooked, man. I from that point on, um, I just started taking more and more kind of whatever they were offering. It was like metal welding and. Um, we did 3d modeling and paint, like just painting. And, um, there was some Photoshop and illustrator classes sprinkled in. So there's some, some digital work, but, uh, yeah, it's super broad, really fun photography, film, kind of everything. Mm, and from that time, what was the, the kind of work, the art, artistic kind of work that you really started to resonate with? Was it, um, was there something in particular that, um, you found most exciting? I think I really enjoyed the style of work, which was just very kind of chill, project-based. You could just kind of jam on something for quite a while. Um, I had this uh, semester-long um, painting that I did like as this like side study. And I had it set up in my apartment with my two roommates at the time. And, um, it started, you know, kind of rough, like you're just kind of roughing in the background and everything. (laughs) I think they literally thought I was out of my mind, but, um, as like the weeks went by and there's like more detail filled in and, and whatnot, they 
really started to get like into it. And then they like would like kind of check in on me and like start watching. Um, I, I don't know. I think it, I just realized what it was is that it, those types of classes and that type of work just spoke to me on, uh, kind of a deeper level. It, it resonated in a way that, that a lot of the other stuff wasn't. And, um, and so, um, I think I saw it more as just this exploration time there, you know, there wasn't one specific thing that I was after or, um, trying to achieve, but just kind of, um, experimenting. Got it. And what was the painting of out of curiosity? Yeah, it was of a barn. Um, it, I, so outside of, uh, Duke where I went to college, um, there I, I don't even know. I think I was doing some film experiment and I snapped a picture of this, this cool barn that was like on the side of the road, uh, somehow decided to paint that. And, um, it, uh, it turned out like pretty decent and I forgot about it for a couple of years. And then, um, after I gotten married and we were like living in a house, it, it resurfaced and I, I looked back at it and I was like, wow, like I didn't even, I mean, I remember doing it, but it was even better. Like, I was like, wow, okay, like um, it's been a while, but it, it turned out okay. So it's it it hung on our wall for for a couple of years. So it's kind of fun. Yeah, wow. Um, I've recently caught up with my parents uh, who are now retired, who've just caravaned down from Bribe Island in Australia all the way to Melbourne, and they bought in the back of their caravan this like A one sized color pencil sketch that I did back <laughs> must have been a, a decade ago, and it was like whoa, <laughs> like I, I really explored some obscure artistic stuff back in the day. It's really quite interesting. It's amazing. But it's nice to see that like evolution of where you kind of started and then where you're exploring now, because I think something I heard in what you were saying was that you were experimenting, you're exploring different things. And I think that's part of the process. And along those lines, like I'm curious, given that you had a background in more like a traditional art film, that kind of stuff, how did you like determine or figure out that you wanted to design software? Right. So I did somewhere late in the, in the mix, I took an intro to web class. Uh, it wasn't until my fourth year of college. So, um, and I think that was a big moment for me because up until that point, I was just kind of going along, taking these different classes. And, and it, at that, um, during that class, it just felt like everything was kind of coming together. And it was like, oh, okay, I can use some of these skills here. It brings in some of the photography or some of these visual elements. Um, and um, so I think that was part of what turned me on to design and sharpened the focus a little bit. Um, mm. And it just kind of took it from there. Yeah. And what were some of those um, traditional skills that you think really carried across into software design? Well, I mean, I think one of the interesting things was that um, just moving forward a little bit, once I realized that I wanted to do web design, digital design, um, it was like, great, okay, I have a little bit of time in school left. Let's figure out like how I can actually get a job doing this. So I found an internship at a, at a company that was in the same city as uh, the college I was going to. And 
Um, it seemed like it was going to be a perfect fit. And I was so stoked about it. They did awesome work and they seemed like really great people. And I got all my stuff together and, and applied. And um, basically what happened was they were like, um, look, like you don't really have any you know, web experience and that might be a good thing to have if you're going to get this internship. And, um, so I kind of found myself in this chicken and egg type of situation. Like, how are you supposed to get work if you don't have the job? And I think a lot of people find themselves in, in that spot at some point or another. Um, but, um, if we fast forward a little bit, um, I, during that, that application process, um, one of the important things which helped me land it eventually was some of the things in my portfolio, the art pieces. And um, they were just, the, the people who did the interview, they were actually just interested in in some of these broader skills. They were like, wow, I'm really curious how you can bring that to the web and 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 do that in a digital context. And um, so it, it was kind of fascinating to see that stuff come back up um, down the road when um, maybe I hadn't even spent that much time doing the, the digital work. Um, but, uh, it was part of, um, showing at least a little bit of aptitude and, and a little bit of, of promise just to kind of get my foot in the door. Yeah. And w- what were those, um, pieces that they were most interested in? Do you remember? Um, I, well, I honestly think some of the painting stuff, um, I had kind of done just a couple of pieces there. And, um, I think I, I remember that being, one of the things that was of interest. Um, Drop that picture of the barn in there for them. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) That's great. And um, in that early stage of your career, when you were just exploring that internship, uh, what were some of the the challenges that you had to overcome? Like you mentioned, um, trying to get experience seemed to be a really, really hard thing to do. And I think that's a challenge that a lot of younger designers face is like, you're expected to have experience, but you don't have experience. Right. So how do you get the experience that you meant to have given that you've got no experience? Yeah. It seems like a bit of a catch 22 for a lot of people. No, I think, I think it's a tough spot to be in. Um, and I honestly, that was one of these moments where I felt, uh, just a little bit tested um, because what happened was I had applied to the internship and they were like, Hey, like you need some work. And I was like, Oh shoot. And so they basically denied me for the first time. And um, I was like, okay, well, you know, I got to figure this out. Um, And what that led to was me just kind of, um, there was a nonprofit that I was connected to at this, at the time. And figured out I could, um, help them put a site together and do a CMS. And, um, so I just started learning what needed to happen to do that and took on some free projects around, um, college. And luckily, you know, um, I was still in school at the time. And so it wasn't needing to like provide for myself, like fully. Um, but, um, yeah, I think that, that was definitely one of the notable early challenges with, getting started was, um, being denied from that internship, having to figure it out. And I reapplied to the same internship because I, after a year, I was still feeling like that was what I wanted to be doing. And it was at that, Mm. it was at that point that, um, I got in and then was offered a full-time, um, role after the internship finished up. Yeah. And and that, um, you mentioned like being knocked back. Um, how did that, 
impact what you did next? Like, how, how did you kind of overcome that? Was that was there some kind of like mental thing that you had to overcome? Because um, it sounds like you you were pretty dogged. Like you you just right. came back and you you kept trying trying to like tackle that again and again. And I'm curious like how you felt at the time and what you were what you were thinking about. Yeah, I think that. I mean, I remember the emotion, the, the, the feeling of it. And, it, you know, it's kind of like a little bit of a punch in the gut. You're like, I thought this is felt perfect or it, it seemed to line up. And and then it's like, no, I'm like, OK, like I, I, I need to <laughs> deny. Yes. Like closed door. OK. Um, you know, I think a lot of the context that I had was sports. I played mm. a lot of sports growing up and played in college and um it was like, well, what do you do when you when you get knocked down? When you lose a game, um, you know, you don't pack it in. You just kind of get back out there and and um, practice your your skill and your skills, and you you know, kind of jump back in in the ring. So mm. I think um, that was yeah, that was essentially it for me. It was kind of realizing, hey, this is a low moment, but. Um, you got to keep kind of pushing. Mm. Yeah, it sounds like um, you mentioned that you played lacrosse, right? Yeah, lacrosse. Uh, at Duke, was it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So like maybe like the um, – I imagine you get knocked down a lot. We don't really <laughs> play lacrosse in Australia, but I imagine you get hit pretty hard pretty pretty often. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's a fairly regular thing um, in the mm. game. It's a pretty physical game. And, and, um, and yeah, that's kind of like part of my lacrosse story too is that I came from an area that wasn't like a hotbed. It wasn't, you know – um, there weren't people left and right going to, to top schools. And, um, so, you know, I had a lot of coaches tell me at the time, like, Hey, look, like best of luck, but you're not, you're not our guy or you're, you know, mm. you're undersized to, to play. Like we're looking for, you know, bigger, um, players and whatever it was. And, um, I, in a similar way to getting into design, I had one school, kind of say, Hey, look, like we'd love for you to come play for us. And, um, and that the kind of, that was all I needed to kind of get in Mm. and and start doing work. Mm. Back at that time when, uh, you were having those conversations, was there anyone in particular that, um, whose advice perhaps made the most impact on you? It sounds like you've got this very strong, um, ability to overcome failure and and keep going, and I'm wondering if um, there was a particular piece of advice or a person that maybe contributed something to you that gave you an access. Mm. I will say that from that general time, um, and it was once I was already in the internship, um, I was basically in full time learning mode, and I did not have a ton of background, did not have a ton of skills. Um, I had maybe some raw ability and and kind of a eagerness to learn. And, um, I think one of the, a number of people who made a huge impact on me were just some of the senior designers at Vigit, the, the agency that I got the job at. And, um, they just kind of took me under their wing. And, um, I went from like, just not knowing really a thing. And we, we did consistent kind of critiques and, um, just, kind of worked through it and mm-hmm. try to dig in deep and read some books, read some blogs and, um, kind of deepen my understanding. But I thought that, um, that it was a critical time for me and just like a really, uh, helpful time just of learning. And, and those guys kind of brought me along. 
Mm. Is there anything that you learned back um, at that agency going through that critique process that you still kind of apply today, even with your work at Whimsical? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I still keep in touch with them a lot and they're a customer of ours, which is really cool to see that come for full circle. Um, How is that, by the way, just um, people that perhaps mentored you now use the product that you make? What, how, that, how does that actually feel like? Yeah, it's wild, right? Um, you know, I just have a ton of respect for those folks. They're very, very talented at what they do. And um, uh, so it's humbling in a way, right? That Those guys have, and girls, they just um, have a, a ton of talent themselves. And, uh, I was always kind of the, the younger guy, the, the person who was kind of up and coming and, um, not to say that I've arrived or anything like that, but it, it is really cool to put something out there. And I think this has been the experience with whimsical is like, you put something out there and, um, it's just a couple people making it, but then so many people mm. get to experience it. And, um, so many people have these different experiences and, and in similar in, in some ways, uh, cause they're all united by the product and, and their experience with it. So, um, yeah, it's, it's really fascinating, but it's very cool to, to see. That's great. And um, maybe this is a great segue and I'm hoping you can take me back to starting Whimsical. What actually prompted the idea behind it? Yeah. So with Whimsical, um, it was ba- it, Whimsical's kind of been a classic story of build it for yourself. Um, my co-founder and I were at a tech company in Denver together and um, basically we noticed that the whole team was using a bunch of fragmented tools. And on top of that, a number of them just weren't particularly fun to use. And um, some of those were digital, but like there was a, a, a time where we were using this physical whiteboard with a bunch of sticky notes that like kept falling off. And um, it was simple and there was a, a nice thing about that, but you know, it was pretty janky too. Like we had people like that were remote and we'd have to hold up a computer so that they could <laughs> see the, the sticky board. And, um, so I think that, um, going through some of those experiences and at previous jobs as well, it just felt like there was like this opportunity to build a tool that we ourselves needed. And, um, I think that was a huge part about the idea behind it, but I will say that my co-founder Casper's, um, kind of peeled off and started working on Whimsical for about six months um, by himself, solo. And so some a lot of the initial directional insights um, about the product and, and what it needed to be started with him. And then when I joined him six months in, then we kind of started working on it together and um, forming the, the more of the vision moving on from that mm. point. Yeah. And just to create the context for those who aren't familiar with Whimsical, how would you describe it to a complete stranger who's got absolutely no context? Right. Yeah. So Whimsical is a suite of visual communication tools. And so our products allow remote teams to do a lot of the same things that you would do in person on a whiteboard, um, but you can do them online. And um, I like to say that it's, it's kind of similar to a more visual version of G Suite. And Mm -hmm. so you can have multiple people in the same document at the same time, and you're just working on a little bit more visual type of work 
and um, doing th the types of things you would do on a whiteboard instead of just text docs and spreadsheets like you do in G Suite. Yeah, great. It's um, it's actually it's funny. We we've, we've had this conversation a couple of times, but um, everyone that I know that uses Whimsical can't help but tell me how much they love Whimsical and how excited they were that I was talking to you uh, about the company that you created. So it's it's definitely for the designers that I know. It's it's made a big difference to them having access to it. And I'm, I'm kind of curious, you mentioned that Casper also worked on the idea for about six months. Uh, and I'd really like to dig into how you took it from that early idea where it was just like maybe two guys in a room uh, to an actual fully fledged software startup. Uh, can you walk us through what that looked like? Sure. Yeah. Um, well, first off, I have to give a ton of credit to Casper's. He is this very rare mix of talents and experience and he's been building software for a long time and and has this great breadth of skills so the fact that he was able to um kind of work on this and just um you know basically build the entire full stack app um and get um the mvp was pretty well underway by the time i i got started and um i think what it was at that point was Let's build the core flowchart experience. That was our first product. And so mm. um, just focused on some of the main activities that would need to, to be there for the flowchart creation process. And, um, you know, there was still a decent amount of stuff that, that needed to happen. Um, when I came on, we, we, we reskinned the whole app. We kind of, we needed some things on the marketing side. So we needed to kind of, um, work on the logo and some of the, the visual assets for the brand and, uh, marketing site and so on. Um, but it, uh, it was just kind of mad dash and there's no actual deadline, but, uh, it, we, we launched about a month and a half after I joined him. So it was wow. pretty quick. Mm. Out of curiosity, how did the two of you meet and decide that um, this was an idea that you wanted to do together? Right. So Casper's actually was one of the people who interviewed me for the company uh, that we worked together at. Um, oh, no way. And uh, yeah, so we, not knowing each other at all, we had a great conversation in that interview. I still remember it, um, just kind of talking about products and what, what we thought went into good products. And um, and I think uh, through the, the course of working together for a couple of years, we weren't working closely together, but um, just observing each other and, and kind of crossing paths every now and then. I think we just, um, I developed a kind of admiration for his um, skills and also how he, how he carried himself and um, just his, his integrity. Um, and um, so then I think like kind of moving that forward, um, when he decided to kind of step aside from um, full contact where we were, he, and start working on, on whimsical, we kind of kept in touch a little bit and, um, and had a few lunches over the course of a couple months, months. And then there came a point where, um, uh, let's see, I'm trying to remember exactly how it happened, but basically I had been feeling that I wanted to do an early stage startup for quite a while. And, 
um, I kind of put it out there to him. I said, Hey, look, like, I don't know if it would ever make sense for us to work together. Um, I have a lot of respect for you and I don't know what the timing would be like. Maybe it'd be a year from now, uh, maybe sooner, but, um, I'm just putting it out there. Like I, I would really enjoy doing something like that. And at the time he was like, you know, I've actually been considering applying to some of these accelerator programs. And, um, one thing led to the other and we were like, um, like, okay, wow, we, we've, progress pretty quickly here. Like, are we talking about going in and, and doing this, like kind of partnering up? And, um, so we kind of, it, from that, that lunch conversation, um, we went back, talked to our wives and, and, um, did some, you know, soul searching for, for the next couple of weeks. But, um, that was kind of the Genesis. And from there, um, kind of some other big pieces fell in, in place and, and we were off and running. Oh, that's really cool. Um, you mentioned uh, you were going to apply at some accelerator programs. Um, I'd like to dig into a little bit about um, after you guys had decided to work together, what perhaps gave you the confidence to commit to Whimsical as more than just a side project? Like It sounds like you're in this stage of life where you have uh, both have wives, you've got families. Um, you know, I can imagine there's this whole conversation about the risks and the future. And can you just kind of walk us through what that was like at that time? Sure. Um, first of all, I think I never really considered it as a side project. It was from the start, it was always an all in, you know, type of thing. And Casper's had already gone all in on it um, and had been going for a few months. And so um, it, it was still a process for me kind of um, going through the different factors in the pros and cons and was this the right opportunity and the right person to do it with and the right product to, to make a go of it. Because I, I think the common wisdom, right, is that if you're going to build a, a company of kind of significance, then it's going to be kind of this seven to 10 year type of thing minimum. And so that's what I had in my mind. I was like, okay, like, am I ready to sign on for that um, seven to 10 or longer? And, um, I think a big part for me was one, um, like I've mentioned before, I, I really had a lot of confidence in, in Casper's. I felt like he, he would be a great partner. And I thought that we had, um, a good, um, just, we were able to collaborate well together. And I thought that was gonna, gonna be, um, good in that sense. Also, you know, in terms of risk, I actually felt like there was, um, a lot of upside, unlimited upside and, and a fairly limited downside. Um, and so I, I'd, I'd actually, when I really thought about it, um, didn't feel like it was a super risky thing. I felt like, man, um, honestly, I'd probably be bummed if I didn't take a shot here. And, um, and then also had felt like this was, uh, starting a company and being a part of an early stage startup was something I was being called to do that, that like, that was actually something, um, on a deeper level level that I was meant to do at some point. And, um, I wasn't sure, um, a hundred percent at the time that this was that 
company that that I was supposed to um, help start. Um, but it became very apparent maybe a week, two weeks after I made the full like the the jump that I was like I was a hundred percent hundred percent sure that it was the right call and um, was so relieved and and just loving it and and have kind of sustained that. It's just kind of been one of those um, amazing opportunities that uh, has kind of been the most fun, the most fulfilling work experiences that I've ever had. Out of curiosity, you mentioned um, you had a lot of confidence in Casper, your partner, and I'm wondering if maybe the confidence that you had to commit to Whimsical or the confidence you had in the product came from him as a person and him as a partner. So it's not necessarily about the product you were working on. It was more about who you could work with or who you could be together as a team and then how you might tackle work. Uh, Would you say like the team and working with him was a real foundation of um, what gave you that confidence? Yeah, I think that is a pretty good way of putting it because um, it's funny to admit it right now, but I, I didn't see the complete vision for whimsical as a as a product early on i was a little concerned actually i was like okay flowcharts like um i knew like lucid chart existed and i'm like okay you know they've raised some money it seems like they have some like a number of big clients and traction there so um it seems like okay you know you can build a a good sized business here and um but there, there was some concern there like you know am i interested enough in this particular thing and is it a big enough market um but i do think and i don't know that that i knew for sure at that point but especially now having worked together for the last couple of years um there is a sense where it doesn't quite matter like i'm just excited that we get to build software together and um it feels like wow um what's in front of us is just a bunch of opportunity and really cool, fun stuff that we can do. And not so much like, Oh, are we going to be able to do it? Or is it going to be good or bad or whatever it is? But it really just feels kind of this invigorating sense of what could be and that we're going to put our heads down and, and try to make something cool that we're really proud of. Um, and kind of figure it out together. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Back in the beginning, um, I wanted to jump back. You mentioned vision a couple of times and where I wanted to unpack a bit more was um, how you found balancing moving fast while creating a vision for the future because I can imagine it's pretty difficult to do the two simultaneously. I think some of the vision came from some of those early conversations where it was just the two of us and uh, we were working out of Casper's basement at the time. And, um, you know, we would just kind of go walk around the neighborhood and just talk about ideas or where things could go and kind of just um, imagine what, you know, what we could be doing or how the the product could evolve. Um, so I think some of the vision came from that, some of those early conversations of just dreaming. And um, interestingly, it came together pretty quickly, at least uh, just the high-level idea. 
Um, and that was very freeing in a way because we could just put our heads down and be like, well, yeah, that's, that's generally where we're going and, and let's start going there. Um, for instance, when we first launched flowcharts, we had wireframes, sticky notes, and mind maps kind of teased up in the top as like coming soon. And so we kind of put that out there to everybody that that's where we were headed. And that was from the very beginning. And it's kind of cool that it actually worked out that way that we went on to build those things. So given the beginning where you started, you've had this vision, you knew you were going to start with flowcharts uh, yeah. and maybe move forward to the other product lines. Um, how would you, or what would you say would be the secret to Whimsical's growth uh, to allow allow you guys to actually progress forward from there? Yeah, I think there's probably not like a real secret, um, but I'm a big fan of, of Paul Graham and have read a bunch of his essays. And so w one of these is just one of the things he loves to say and is make something people love, you know, mm. and kind of boil it down to something very simple that you can really grasp. Um, make something people love that they find useful, that they're actually willing to pay you money for. Um, and a lot of things just come out of that. Um, and I, to that's totally been, um, our experience is, um, get that first thing right and some yeah. other things will fall in line. Um, the other thing that's been tremendously helpful for us is having a growth engine built in, in the sense mm. that um, our tool is a communication tool and it just inherently spreads itself. Um, so you're adding people to your, your workspace or you're creating work and then sharing it with someone, whether that's a teammate or a client or whatever it is. And so that has been huge and really helpful in the sense that um, it just grows itself and um, kind of day after day, new people kind of coming in the doors and experiencing it and then kind of perpetuating the cycle. And um, so that's, probably been one of the single biggest, um, you know, contributors to growth. Mm, it's interesting where I work. I remember the early days when we were using Lucidchart and um, how painful it was to actually use it and how long it took to put together these flowcharts. And I remember one day very early on, uh, one of our product managers, I think, found the tool and started wireframing uh, or flowcharting stuff together quite quickly. Uh, and then sent out the link. And I was like, wow, what is this tool? This looks fantastic. And then I like went on this whole rabbit hole and then I started using it. And suddenly it like it carved down being uh, the need to like spend an hour on a flowchart to about 10 minutes. And I was like, this is the way, like this is the future. We need to have this tool and I need to help sp spread it throughout <laughs> the rest of the company. Um, That's awesome. And I just, I, I remember thinking that at the very start, you'd just done something so right in that you thought about the needs of people like me and like the product manager that um, introduced it where we're pretty time poor and this thing that we're working on is not like the final output. This is like one step to get there and you really made it easy with Whimsical for us to get past that step or get past that hurdle uh, to allow us to do or get to the the coded part of the page or whatever the next step was, but you didn't have that step be such an effortful thing. You've really made that quite effortless for us. So I really think that focusing on that experience really enabled 
us to then share it on because we knew that everyone else would benefit from this tool as well. Uh, and then flash forward in like six months later and suddenly no one's using Lucidchart. We've got a whimsical <laughs> account and like, yeah, your growth engine worked. Yeah, that's amazing. That's so cool to hear. I love that. And and honestly, kind of going back to some of the, the core product um, just principles or philosophies, we were just boiling it down to let's make this thing fast, fun to use, beautiful output and collaborative, you know, just kind of some of these core words that we kept coming back to. And when we would write about the products, those were the words that, that always came, kind of came to mind. Like this is kind of what we had in mind. And these are the things that we did in order to make it that way. And um, so it's really awesome to hear people kind of, use the product and experience some of those things um, and have it save them time. Or, um, you know, you have certain users like engineers typically will say like, um, I'm creating this thing that looks way better than it should. And I'm, <laughs> I'm so psyched and like, thank you. That's <laughs> pretty, pretty fun. How, how is it for you? Like, how does that make you feel when you hear feedback like that coming from an engineer about the product? Oh, it's really cool. Um, I honestly think that um, getting good feedback where people just are loving the tool and are excited about it is one of the coolest feelings, just hands down, of the whole deal. Um, watching um, people... Yeah, get in touch with us and, and and say some of those things. It feels amazing. Watching people upgrade and and actually like pay for the tool is sort of surreal too. Um, still, just like um, kind of blows my mind. But um, it is it's a really cool thing. Mm. And outside of that um, growth engine that you mentioned is baked into Whimsical, were there any other ways in the beginning where you were perhaps doing guerrilla marketing or how did you distribute Whimsical to find like a core base of users uh, to then have that growth engine kind of kick into gear? Right. One of the really helpful things is that we did a couple of different launches, one for each of the products, each of the four products that came out. And we did each of those on Product Hunt and... Um, which was a great source of, of users and just kind of jump-starting things for us. Um, with each of those, we would do a blog post and a launch video, and we'd kind of have things ready. And um, we'd also try to get into some newsletters and some forums like Designer News or um, Sidebar, some of these some of these places where a lot of the designers specifically and, you know, some product people hang out. Um, so some of those channels were really helpful for us, especially when literally no one had heard of us. And, um, yeah, at that point it was just like, do things that don't scale, you know, troll Twitter and talk to anyone who, you know, is looking for what we think we have. And, um, but those were some of the big things. Mm. And what were some of the early challenges uh, in that stage where you were perhaps trying to grow? Um, how did, like what, what was it like to really build Whimsical in those early days? I think a couple of challenges come to mind. One, one was just that SaaS in general, like a subscription tool, is a really slow ramp. You know, each person is only paying you, you know, 10, 10 bucks a pop. 
And while that's great, um, it's going to take like quite a few people to, to do that in order to um, have a substantial amount of revenue. So it's a slow ramp at the beginning. And at that point, we were just so excited that, um, you know, people were finding the app and and signing up and, and some of them upgrading that, it, you know, we were just, you know, had plenty of energy to just keep going and pushing. And but um, I think another thing related to that is that early on the core experience is there, but man, there's not a whole lot else. It, it, it really did not have a whole lot there. Um, and, you know, so a lot, the collaboration features were not there. Um, just a lot of the stuff around the periphery, it was just, um, we had that, that kind of basic flowcharting experience and, and luckily that carried it enough. And um, with each new launch that we came out with, we kept the prices exactly the same. And so it was really cool to see the compounding effect of some of these new products coming in and helping us just uh, with that kind of cost of value equation that each person is is um, encountering where they're like, okay, is it worth it? And, um, you know, the, mo the more tools that we include with that um, and the more value that we're giving the users, I think we've, that's become an easier conversion, which is really cool mm. to see. Mm. And was it a strategic choice to start with flowcharts and not with, say, mind maps or wireframes? Like, why did you zone in the in the beginning on flowcharts? Like, what was it about it that you really thought would be uh, the best place to start? Yeah, you know, you'll have to ask Caspers. I don't know, actually. <laughs> I can't remember um, why he wanted to start there. Um, I think it's the one that we used probably the most um, at the job before. And... Um, so he, he kind of made that call and, and started down that path. And we weren't sure what we would do next. We actually thought maybe we would do sticky notes second. Um, we ended up doing wireframes, um, partially because a lot of people were asking for it. You know, we had those T's up, up top in the inside the app. And so people saw it and they'd reach out like, when is this coming? When's that coming? Um, which is always fun. And um, the other thing was that um, we have these contextual toolbars, so the, the little toolbars that pop up right above the object that you have selected. And um, it was a really helpful um, just kind of interaction pattern that started us down this road of figuring out how to do that for the other use cases. And I remember we had um, our first kid or it was like one year old at the time and i was up a lot during the night and in the middle of the night just holding him and um hanging out and it was just a pretty awesome memory actually memories of these times where i would just be in this dark room with white noise like walking around in circles but just kind of thinking about um the product and it was it was during that time actually that i was like you know what i honestly think with these contextual toolbars we can build one of the coolest wireframing apps that's ever been built and um, I just had a lot of excitement, enthusiasm myself. And um, when we had some of the users asking for it as well, it kind of felt like that was the next place to go. Um, and uh, that was just like kind of came together that way and was really fun to build and really awesome to have it as a concept just in our minds and then watch it, you know, come to real life. 
Mm-hmm. I'll come back to um, contextual toolbars a little bit later, but I wanted to drill down into um, your decision to stay bootstrapped versus seeking investment because you mentioned that you know, you were applying at one of these accelerator programs. Um, why did you make that call to stay bootstrapped? And for context for the audience, bootstrapped meaning, meaning um, staying self-funded and kind of growing slowly over time with revenue based on profits from the business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and when the the topic first came up, it wasn't 100% clear what path we should take. And we did apply to Y Combinator and and Techstars, a couple of these accelerators. And it was was a huge blessing that we didn't get it um, because it forced us to just launch and figure it out. And um, I think that was probably the best thing that could have happened to us. And... um, and then it became this this decision of well, like, what are the real reasons to raise money? Like, what are the, what are we going to be missing out on if we don't? And what are we going to be missing out on if we do? And I think some of the huge things for us is that just a month or two in, when we we were working together, it was like this is the most fun that I've ever had. I don't want this to end. I don't want to mess it up. I we we want to build a long-term company that's going to be around for for decades. Like let's just keep this going. Um and so um I think there's a lot of influence in the venture capital space of this um kind of all or nothing um go big or go home, you know, maybe you get acquired or something else like this happens, but then your products kind of going away. And, and, um, we didn't, we didn't want that. We, we wanted to give ourselves the best chance possible that we would be here for the long term. And, um, and honestly, we just, I think a big part of that was realizing that we thought we could do it, um, like without the outside money. Uh, you know, we didn't know for sure. It was, it was hard to say. And we had just, maybe not even launch the product when we're having some of these conversations, but, um, and just realizing that some businesses don't have that opportunity and like, but it felt achievable for us. And, um, and I think, uh, in hindsight, it's been one of the top, you know, one or two decisions that we've made so far. And we haven't said that there's no way that we wouldn't raise money in the future at some point. I don't, I don't think necessarily we're saying that for the entire life of the company, but it has been so crucial for um, these early years. And um, especially now that, that we're profitable, I think it kind of opens up all sorts of possibilities of like just dreaming about having the freedom to take these big bets and to be mission first and to like, um, I guess be led by something higher than producing profits. Like, sure, mm. you know, we want we want to kind of continue to grow and, and produce profits, but it's like, man, what could we do? And so, I think some of these conversations have been incredibly um, fun and just dreaming about um, where the company can go. And, and what's possible because we are self-funded and independent. Hmm. You mentioned um, being profitable, and I'm curious how that feels given that you were denied from the accelerator program to <laughs> actually go out on your own and build a, like a functional, prof- profitable business. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it was kind of one of those things where 
with the, with the SAS model, it's just kind of chipping away, you know, and you get, you kind of each month, you get a little bit closer. And then, you know, at some point we needed to have some teammates join us. So it was just the two of us for a while. And then we brought on a third guy and, and a fourth guy. And that pushes back your, you know, profitability, you know, break even point. Um, but um, yeah, it was, it was a big kind of celebratory um, achievement when we, when we hit it. And, um, I think, I don't remember exactly when it was maybe between a year and a year and a half. And, um, and I think that, yeah, it, it, things were kind of like building toward that. And, um, and then you kind of like pass it and then you keep going and, um, and then it's like, great, well, that, that's awesome that that's, um, that's there and, and it should stay that way. And let's, let's go figure out like the next cool stuff that we can do. Mm. And, uh, in, um, practice at work, how has being bootstrapped, uh, impacted the way that you work at Whimsical? Are there certain decisions that you make or trade-offs you have to consider given that you've got no outside injection of capital? Yeah. I, I think trade-offs is a really good way of putting it. And, um, I think there are some limiting factors, right? So um, you have to grow as your revenue grows and you can't hire a hundred people in a year and um, you need to be more selective about what we work on because of that. And um, you're not using a lot of paid marketing typically. So um, you need to figure out other ways to do that and you need to have patience. But honestly, I think a lot of those things have been healthy. So if they sound like kind of... Um, disadvantages, but I, I think they have been advantages in a lot of ways that we, we just have had um, so much time to focus on our customers and the product and really mm. nothing much else. It's just um, very focused. And so that's been huge and a, an amazing way to work. Really, really fun. Mm. I mean, I, when we're doing product work and building stuff, that's when I'm having the most fun and it's kind of been nonstop for the last two years. Um, so mm. amazing in that regard. And um, so I think that that's kind of where it's freeing um, is that we're not spending time pitching and fundraising. And um, we, furthermore, I think now that we're profitable, we can kind of say, okay, like, let's take a step back and evaluate, like, what do we want to do? Like, where do we want to spend our time? We don't need to, you know, hit certain numbers, um, for the business necessarily. Like let's, um, let's really, um, think hard about what we want to do next and, and have fun with it. Mm. Something I want to dig into, um, now that you're kind of talking about this kind of stuff is, how did you think about designing the business, not just the product, but the business itself? Because you've mentioned a few things that I find to be quite remarkable. Like you talk about, um, you know, building a business that's at least going to last 10 years. You're talking about long-term thinking. Um, you're talking about using uh, or putting users first. And from my understanding, a lot of startups in the space, when they've got a big injection of capital, like they've got an incentive to provide a return to their shareholders and they make sacrifices on vision for profitability. But it, it sounds like you haven't got those traditional considerations to make. And I'm wondering like, what does it actually look like for you like to design that business? What, what are the things that you're thinking about? Um, and what's the context you carry on? Yeah. 
It's a good question. I think that one of the helpful ways of thinking about it for us has been what type of company would we like to work for? Um, what What is that ideal um, type of working environment and, and culture? And what are the characteristics of, of a dream company? Like, let's, let's see if we can get as close as we can to that. Um, and so some of those things have informed like the larger decisions like bootstrapping, um, being remote first as another massive one. And I think mm. that just affects the, the, the type of work or the style of work that we're doing. Um, we're huge fans of just a remote, calm, asynchronous, um, minimum amount of meetings, just um and and partially by the fact that we're just six people right now but um there's just not like a lot of extra um you know bs there's not the just the things that kind of drag you down that that mm. can happen at at some other bigger companies and um i'm sure we'll have to you know fight those fights later when and if, if we continue to grow in terms of headcount but um i just have loved the simplicity of it of just being a small team that we can um all uh collaborate and communicate easily and um use our own our own tool and um you know, we have a big time zone difference um between uh, a number of our teammates are in Latvia and um and then a couple of us are in like Colorado, California in the US. And um so really kind of leaning on an asynchronous works work style and um you know we'll have kind of like a um a weekly meeting just to kind of kick off each week. But um aside from that, just pretty light on meetings besides like mm. a few a few one on ones. And for anyone that's not familiar with the term, how would you describe async meetings or async to them? Yes. So basically not necessarily needing to happen at the same time. So if you think of synchronous as like everything's kind of like real-time chat, like Slack, um, we strive to try to do a lot of our work just based on, um, you know, uh, I'll do some work and then um, tag someone in a comment and kind of say, hey, when you get a chance, check this out. And um, so it's more, um, I think, a style of I'll go do some work over here. You got, you do some work over there and then, um, uh, you can kind of control when you're checking your messages and when you're kind of processing, um, some of the things you've been asked to check in on. Um, so asynchronous in, in that sense. Mm, it sounds like you're baking calm into work. Whereas I can imagine a lot of workplaces bake chaos into <laughs> work. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and again, like it is simpler, right? With with a mm. smaller number of of folks, but um, I know that there's larger companies that are working this way as well, and mm. um, so we hope to keep kind of these same things alive, and you know maybe have to tweak some of the processes along the way. But um, yeah. it's been uh, a really liberating way of working. I love it, um, and uh, it's just. Um, yeah, like I said, just very calm and um, you kind of take it at your own pace and uh, a lot of time for deep work and, and focus. Hmm. And what would you say, uh, like I'm hearing a lot of stuff, but what, what do you think the benefits of this style of work are for you and everyone on the team? 
Well, I mean, everybody's situation is a little bit different, but um, I was actually thinking the other day of a blog post, just like writing a love letter to remote work. Um, just because, man, for the last two years, um, we, ha we have a three-year-old son and a one-year-old daughter. So it's kind of coincided with us having kids. And um, that has been so helpful that those two have lined up because I think one of the biggest benefits of remote work that I've experienced is just um, like the ability to be around family. And um, for me, that's just kind of like being around in the mornings um, for breakfast and hanging out and kind of checking back in at lunchtime or having like a time to do a walk in the afternoon or, um, or right after work, cutting out the commute time. And um, yeah, just kind of being very involved with, with my, my kids and my wife. And, um, so that in and, of, in and of itself has just been, um, this like huge, tremendous blessing that I've been really, really thankful for. Um, and, um, I mean, I think you can like kind of add a ton of other benefits, general benefits of just, um, kind of being able to work wherever you want. You can travel. It doesn't really matter where you're working from, just kind of need your computer and, and an internet connection. And so we've done some of that. We've traveled um, for, you know, week here or week there, or maybe a little bit longer stretches, um, which is um, really fun and just almost feels like it's uh, like rigging the system. Like this shouldn't be fair. Like this is, you know, not real that you can just sort of pick up and go somewhere Um and, uh, but that, that's been it. And, you know, I, I think I enjoy kind of like the home office thing and, um, um, still getting out for some like coffees or, um, lunches with, with friends, um, or whatever it is. But, um, yeah, th there's just so much, um, possibility when, when you have that much flexibility. Mm, it um, reminds me of something you said earlier in that you were setting out to design the company that you wanted to work for. Uh, and I think a lot of those things that you spoke about are things that anyone would really want, right? Like the ability to have flexibility and where you're, where you're working, cutting out commute times, like a lot of the pain points of modern work, you've essentially just removed from the process, which is really cool. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, connected to that too is when you start a company, you kind of determine like you you uh, have equity and upside in the business. And so not only does it, you kind of have the, the freedom and the um, flexibility around like working from home or working wherever you want to work, um, but also the sense of um, in a company that we'd want to work for, um, there would be meaningful equity, not just for the founders, but for um everybody that joins. And so that's another thing that, um, kind of one of those things of designing the, the company that you'd want to work for. We've, um, felt like there, there needs to be a smaller gap between the early team and the, you know, so-called founders, the, the first people in. And, um, so I think that is another like really cool part of, um, kind of coming up with some of the, um, larger structures of, of the business and how that can work. Mm, and thinking about structures, putting the product side for a, sorry, aside for a second, uh, how do you think about things like processes, meetings, sharing information, your communication flows? Like, like how do, how do you, um, 
I guess, create that for a remote company uh, from the ground up? Even in our short kind of couple years of, of existence, the company has changed a lot. Like when it was just two of us in, in a basement and then um, when we added Mikey, the third guy, um, then we were kind of in remote mode and, and Casper's kind of moved up up to Boulder um, from Denver. And so then we were in remote mode and, and um, we kind of needed to rethink some of the processes, processes there, um, and some of the communication, um, patterns. Um, but honestly, I think it's kind of just been, let's go with what feels right. Um, something that's lightweight, that's, um, that kind of works with everything else that we're doing and not overthinking it, just kind of trying to keep it simple. Um, you know, nothing too heavy. And, um, you know, we've kind of like, um, there was a time where we didn't even have a uh, weekly sync up meeting and then we added one of those and, um, you know, um, we were just talking the, this past week or, or two about what like check-ins with, you know, progress updates, um, some, some notion of that because um, we hadn't been doing regular um, check-ins there. We'd been using some um, hill charts from, from Basecamp's shape up um, and doing kind of some different types of things there. But honestly, I think the story has just been um, figuring it out as we're, as we're evolving and growing and, and what is um, what seems to be lacking or what's going well and, and doing more of that. Mm, I think it comes back to something that you were saying around um, almost like designing the things that don't scale. Like, you know, you don't, you're not solving the problems that you don't have. You're solving the problems that you do have when they show up at that moment in time. Yes, definitely. Yeah. I'm curious about uh, your values as a company and how you think about operationalizing or demonstrating those values in behaviors that you practice on a regular basis. Can you talk through uh, how that might look? Sure. Yeah. And I think in some ways we're, we're still, um, establishing who, who we want to be. And, um, you know, we each kind of come into the company with, with our own values and, and what we care about. But, um, I think, uh, you know, how we, um, operationalize them, how, how we kind of bring them into our behaviors in the day to day. I, you know, we talk about them, um, we write about them, um, a little bit, um, both internally and, and getting into a little, a few blog posts. Um, we'd love to do more of that. Um, and, um, yeah, like I was saying, like with just six of us, we can still have conversations around like one dinner table. So when we get together, um, you know, every six months or so for like a summit, we, um, yeah, we'll just kind of like have meals together and talk about, um, some of these things. And, and those are some of the, the best conversations I think where it's like, um, um, that's actually where, um, for 2019, we decided to plant a bunch of trees and, um, offset our, um, our carbon footprint. That's really cool. And, um, yeah, it was just kind of one of those things that w one of the guys on the team, um, well, came up with the idea and just championed it and felt passionate about it and everybody was on board. And, um, so, um, I think it's fun being at the size where just like an idea can kind of become a reality quite quickly. And, um, and, you know, 
like I mentioned a little earlier, I think we're in the early stages of just dreaming where we could take this and how we could bake in our values even even more and um, and kind of create the the type of company that exists to um, make the world a better place. I, maybe that sounds cliche, but but in a real sense, like let's build an amazing product that's here to stay that people love using, and let's of course like create. Um, an amazing place for people to work at Whimsical. And then let's see what else we can do on top of that. Like let's let's um, kind of use our profits and, and put kind of our money where our mouth is and and, um, and actually um, and do some things with it. So it's it's exciting and feels like we're early on in it, but um, I'm I'm really psyched about that stuff. Yeah, fantastic. And speaking of uh, the things that you can do, I'm curious how you decide, going back to the product, how you determine what to build versus what not to build? Like, how do you make those decisions on a weekly or whatever cadence it looks like? Yeah. We've been building for ourselves, right? Primarily, especially in this first, you know, year and a half to two years. We've kind of said, like, let's build the mind mapping tool that, that we want to use and um, let's build the, you know, the wireframing tool and something that we would really enjoy ourselves. Um, so at a very high level, there's some of that. And then I think, um, you know, for the first year and a half, I was doing like a, a vast majority of the kind of customer support and just chatting with people and um, hearing their ideas and their feature requests. And I think just kind of, um, Hearing those and kind of processing that and just letting those kind of marinate a little bit and figuring out um, what what we wanted to incorporate and, and what made sense at, at what time. Um, I think that's that's roughly how, how it's been going. Um, and um, Casper's and I, I think, we'll just kind of keep... Um, throwing ideas back and forth and, um, um, what, what could be cool. And, and, and honestly, Casper has a really good mind for, um, and I think that some of his engineering, um, just kind of knowing technically how things fit together and what would make sense to do first and, um, just setting a good foundation there and, and a good, um, uh, you know, timing for, for the different things we work on. Hmm. And how does, you mentioned like you were on the, you're on the phones in the very early stages doing a lot of customer support. Uh, I'm very interested in how you include feedback from your users and compare that to input from your engineers, but then also weigh that against your own um, like ideas for where the things, where the product should go or the features, what features uh, you should release. Right. Honestly, I think that it's not a sophisticated system. It's more just um, a lot of just kind of instinct um, also just kind of looking at things at, at, at a high level and saying like, okay, um, group things, these things together and that could be really cool and that could make a lot of sense. And, um, you know, lately we've been working in these six week cycles as part of the, that, uh, shape up, um, methodology. And, uh, 
that's created some cool things in the sense that um, you kind of make a couple um, bets or you have these pitches that you'll kind of make these bets on. And um, we've roughly more or less been following that, that system. And um, it helps you to just um, kind of filter some of these inputs into a couple like tangible, we could go and build this, we could, we could do that, we could do that. Um, and um, keeping it fairly informal and and honestly just figuring out and one of the things we tried to to stick to honestly is is what do what's what are our needs right now and i mean you can't you can't follow that 100% cuz um we aren't going to be exactly like every one of our customers but um i think it helps us get close on some of the fundamental things some of the core stuff like directionally and so we've, we followed that and we're can, kind of continuing to do that and have some fun things in the works, um, that, uh, are related to it. Mm. And thinking about that a little bit more, like some companies say that they're design driven, some say that they're support driven, some say that they are, you know, um, engineer driven, like how would you describe what drives whimsical at its core? Yeah, I've thought about this some too. And I think that what Casper's and I feel is core to Whimsical is that it is, maybe you call it maker-driven. Um, it's a combination of design and engineering. So um, the fact that he is an engineer but also brings a great design sensibility and kind of a, just a, a knack for, for interaction design. And then I'm kind of on the visual side of things and, and, um, bringing the design as well. Um, and pretty early on, I think when we were kind of having some of those, those conversations, the types where we were just walking around the neighborhood, um, I was, I was telling casters that one of these things that I get really excited about and it's kind of animating and, and energizing for me is just this thinking about, building the best product that's ever existed or the best something, you know, the best company that's ever existed. I'm just like fascinated by that. And not, not to say that like we'd actually be able to achieve it. Maybe we would, but, but, um, having that as the goal, like let's, let's set the, the, the sites extremely high and let's go see what we can build. Um, and he was like, actually, I think that's one of the things that, that, um, we share and, that um, it was one of these really interesting insights that we've come back to it a number of times in 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 terms of using that as a criteria for hiring and um, kind of just calling it like this like craftsman mind mindset. So um, whether that makes us like I I, I would kind of maybe say um, I don't know if it's hokey but maybe it's like a craftsman led company like we just like craftsmanship um, as like a super important, um, ideal. Mm. Uh, I think also on top of that as well, like what you spoke about reminds me of like having a, a vision for the future, something that you may not necessarily achieve, but it kind of calls you forward and it calls you to look to continually improve and be better and, um, not kind of, um, become stayed and stuck. 
Uh, and that's what I'm hearing a lot in what you're saying is there's this bigger push to be better at Whimsical. And I, I, I can definitely see it in the product. And I've been a user for over a year now, at least. And like every time, like I, I see these emails from you, it's like, hey, Mike, you know, here's what we're releasing like this month. And I'm like, oh, God, you're solving the problems that I've got. I love this so much. Um, so, yeah, it's a real, like, I think, uh, testament to the maybe the philosophy of both you and Casper's and what you take on for Whimsical to constantly push for more and push for better. Mm. Yeah, thanks. Um, I think that is at the core of what we both like enjoy and, and value. And I know that um, it's really fun for me to have someone like Casper's who's just constantly building amazing things. And I'm just mm. like, I don't know, I'm like, so psyched and you know pumped up i'm like yes like this is amazing and so much fun and let's keep doing this hmm. given that you're a fully remote team then uh what are some of the challenges that show up with um remote work itself because you know you can't just um with casper being in boulder you being in denver you can't just you know open the door and you know, Casper's right there in the next room. How do you, what are some of the challenges and how do you kind of overcome those challenges while we're working remotely? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that one of the biggest challenges that I've seen personally is maintaining connectedness. Um, that seems to be one of the, the difficult things that where an in-person experience is just um, feels fundamentally different. When you're just kind of sharing a meal with someone and you're, you know, some of those, those kind of small talk things and, um, and, you know, you can kind of recreate that a little bit online. Um, but especially with the time zone differences, which I think is another hard one for us in particular is, um, you know, you're not going to get a ton of like, of that, like real time chatting and, you know, zoom call or whatever it is. Um, so those feel like the big ones to me. And, you know, we do, we, we kind of do those six months, every six months, do a summit where we're in person. Um, that's roughly the cadence that we were doing at this point, at least. And, um, um, you know, one of the other common ones, it's, it hasn't been a huge factor for me just cause, um, but loneliness, I think is, mm. uh, something that's come up and, um, you know, I've got like, kids screaming in the background, at least now with my, my home office set up <laughs> and, um, you know, just like a lot going on, it feels like, but, um, but no, I think that can be for sure. And, um, so, and like, I, I think there is a general communication challenge with remote work and, um, a big part of why we're building whimsical and, um, and also one of the really rewarding things about shipping new features and, and building new stuff is that, um, with each of it, hopefully that we're improving the communication, um, options and, 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 um, kind of improving that for ourselves. Mm. And are there any challenges around um, keeping everyone aligned uh, in support of the vision while you work remotely? Yeah, you know, I think that that, like many of the other things, has been an evolving, um, evolving thing for us. Like, how do we all stay in sync, and and how do we do that best? 
Um, and, you know, using Whimsical for a lot of the work that we're doing, it's like using our own tool um, just kind of keeps us connected to things, which is mm. um, maybe not like an opportunity that a lot of people have, but um, it's really helpful for us. Mm. Um, just on that, like, how does Whimsical use Whimsical? Yeah. Out of curiosity. <laughs> right. Yeah, like I remember seeing like a Figma designer saying like people ask me if it's weird designing Figma and Figma and they they had like two windows like stacked inside of each other and they're like <laughs> it's not weird at all. <laughs> uh, um thankfully we're not doing that which would be really trippy. Um so, you know, we're using sticky notes for all of our project management. Um, so we've adopted kind of like a simple version of hill charts from Basecamp, uh, if you've seen those, but basically you're just kind of dragging a particular task um, uh, up and over this hill and you can kind of see the progress that way. Um, we're doing wireframes and brainstorming in mind maps and um i mean you know just kind of using the 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 basic tools um we um just had an integration go live with notion in in the last week or two and we use notion a bunch um for just kind of text-based um work and collaboration so it's cool to see that kind of come together a little bit closer and um because i think between um Figma and Notion and Whimsical. That's kind of like where we spend the vast majority of our time. But um, so it's, uh, yeah, it's it's nice and, and it's been cool kind of bouncing between those and, and seeing them come together in a little way. Fantastic. Um, I do have one question from the product manager that introduced me to Whimsical and I thought I would um, feel terrible if I didn't get it in for her. Um, She's very curious about how you tackled um, adding team accounts, uh, mm. the challenges around permissions and things like that. Can you talk through a little bit about how you approached that and what that was like? Right, sure. Um, well, first I would say that it's like sneaky complicated <laughs> or maybe maybe it's obviously complicated. I'm not sure. But um, all the different permissions and, and the sharing settings and um, just even what you call things, like what the the, the names are for for um, the, the different types of groupings or, or kind of primitives for sharing. Um, that's some tricky stuff. We were just talking about that today, honestly, just like um, it's like a continual refinement process and um you know getting the basics in i think casper's had been kind of mulling on that for a while and um it was this has happened quite a bit but it was kind of one of those things where he was like yeah you know i don't know it's probably gonna take quite a while like a couple months uh, like you know it's it's pretty involved I mean, he's like, I don't, I don't know fully, but I think it's pretty involved. And I'm like, oh man, okay, yeah. Well, I don't know when we'll get to that. And then, and then he'll be like, well, I figured some things out, and wasn't as bad as I thought. And uh, <laughs> I think it, sh- I think it should be ready by the end of the week. Um, and uh, that's just like classic. But um, I think the real answer to it is that um, we're still figuring it out. And, um, it's kind of like a piece by piece thing, um, which, which has kind of been the story of, of whimsical a lot is, is the iterative, um, I mean, I mean, I guess classic software design, but yeah, just iterative, um, adding kind of a feature here, a feature there, um, and 
gradually getting to the place where um, you're solving most of the the needs. I think like there's still like it's still simplistic um, mm. in some regards with the team collaboration. Um, so there's probably like some um, improvements that will need to come there in the coming months. But um, yeah, we're just kind of responding to. Um, any like pressing needs and then trying to refine it as we go. Mm, for sure. Uh, you've mentioned um, the book Shape Up quite a few times. And for those that don't know, it's like uh, from my understanding, I've not personally read the book. I've kind of read the overview that it's about how you shape um, products and features and things like that uh, to deliver incrementally over time perhaps. Um, I was just curious like, could you talk a little bit, bit about like how you use the concepts in that book and apply that at Whimsical? Right. We've kind of, we all read it and, um, one of Giannis actually, one of, one of our, um, backend engineers did like a huge mind map of it, which is cool, uh, inside Whimsical. And, um, <laughs> I, one way to use Whimsical, right? There you go. Yeah. It was pretty big. Um, is that public out of curiosity? I would love to see that. Um, it could be. I I um I can definitely send you the link. Um, because um I don't know that we actually like tweeted it out, but we were kind of like, should we? Like, it's kind of cool. Um, so I'll send it to you. But um, I think we we read the shape up and we're like, wow, there's some really helpful concepts in here. Um, but uh, when it came to actually implementing it for ourselves, um you know, we kind of took our liberties and we're like, okay, let, we don't have to like a hundred percent implement this. And some of it was just like, you know, Basecamp is a 60 person company or something like that. And there's six of us. And so we, the ones doing the shaping, which is, are usually like the product people, the product designer, who, you know, the product strategy person, um, um, they have like separate shaping people and, and implementing people. Whereas it's just like one and the same for us, we're shaping it and then building it. So, um, we can be a little bit more lightweight, um, with our process and, um, but roughly you're kind of, um, calling out some of the, um, the problem that's being solved and your appetite for, um, for building it and, um, the solution that you're kind of roughly sketching out. And I think that's one of the kind of core concepts is not being too prescriptive. But then again, like for us, it's like, well, I'm the one that's going to design it. So, you know, we'll just kind of do whatever communicates effectively the concept that we're going after. And then we can kind of take it from there. Um, and um, yeah, after we kind of, you kind of have some rabbit holes and no goes. Um, but uh, then um We'll, we'll have a period of time where we're collecting some of those big ideas in a board and then we'll start to piece those together in terms of what do we think we can get done in this cycle and what would be like a stretch. Um, so that that's maybe slightly different as well. But um, yeah, we'll basically kind of say, okay, like, you know, this, um, you know, you can take this, this feature, you can take this and um, if we can get to it, we'll, we'll do this and that. And um, so it's still pretty, you know, simple, pretty basic, but um, there's been a number of concepts that have just felt right from the get-go, and I know they've kind of been refining this um, 
over a number of years. And um, so we've benefited a lot from that. Perfect. Um, I wanted to shift gears again now. Um, so I have reached out to a whole bunch of designers in my network and like asked them questions like, what would you love Steve uh, from Whimsical to kind of uh, talk about in this episode of the podcast? And I've got a few things that feel free to like run through uh, rapid fire if um, we're time short. Uh, but if you don't mind, I'll jump into them. Uh, so one question that came up was, why are contextual toolbars a fundamental element inside Whimsical? Mm. Right. Contextual toolbars are fun. Um, and I, I've honestly really come to, to love them. Um, and there are some constraints with, with contextual toolbars just because um, um, you only have a, a, a limited amount of space that, that you can really go before it starts to get out of control. But um, I think one of the coolest things about them is they clean up the interface a ton because you you only have to expose the relevant controls to the object that you have selected. Um, so it just um, it really opens things up and and you're not staring at like a wall of panels on all four sides of the product and instead um, you know you can and just strip away some of that. And, um, and also just, uh, I think it reduces just kind of some of the cognitive overhead of, um, being like, okay, I need to do, I need to like crop this image. Um, where's that crop icon and, you know, you know, kind of digging through a menu as opposed to like, okay, well, it's one of five icons that are sitting above this, this image. So, um, I just love how, how tailored it is and, um, mm. how it's expanded when we just did flowcharts, like there was, um, a number of of core objects. But then when we did wireframes, there's, you know, a couple dozen more that each had their own, you know, slightly different, um, contextual toolbar. And, um, it's a, it's a cool, like, um, surprisingly scalable, um, structure that, uh, has, yeah, I think it's, it's been really fun to, to work on that. Mm, it's almost something that's like flexible, but easily replicatable and then mm -hmm. understandable as well, because there's this element of consistency across the different um, product lines. Like you have that familiar behavior that you can expect mm -hmm. as a user navigating between flowcharts to wireframes to sticky notes. Like it's all kind of consistent uh, throughout right. the experience. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, it's it's surprisingly flexible like that, um, that it can cover like a, a pretty wide range of things. And um, for me too, like um, just doing the design, it's actually pretty fun um, working on the icons. I'm just kind of, you know, just you, when you're like zooming out on some of the stuff we've been talking about, but then you zoom all the way in and just kind of crafting some pixels and doing some icons. So I have fun with that too. Fantastic. Uh, it's almost like I imagine your um, drawing class like kind of coming back in a way, like getting down into those kind of details. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's fun. Mm. Uh, so another question was, why did you decide to limit the color palette? Yeah. Um, we had, The colors have evolved a little bit in Whimsical, but um, initially we limited the colors in wireframes quite a bit. Um, uh, in order to for them to be semantic, um, it, it was one of those things that we felt about uh, the wireframe tool is that um, all the color usage needed to convey meaning. So um, we kind of had, for the most part, one primary color, and then we had like a destructive 
um, or like kind of error color. And then we had an additive um, kind of success color. Um, so that for us was like sort of like a blue, green, red, um, blue, red, green. And, um, and then also just for like consistency um, to try to like maintain a beautiful aesthetic and, um, and also like um, kind of constraining the, the product and um, kind of helping people just work within those constraints, I think can be um, freeing and actually make people quicker. Um, when they're not having to like deliberate between, you know, 10 shades of green, um, they can just pick the one green option and, and be on their way. Yeah. It reduces their decision-making fatigue about like yes. the right color of that shade of green. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. Hmm. Um, why did you optimize left-handed shortcuts in whimsical wireframes? Right. So we did that primarily for speed. Um, and, uh, it was kind of fun. One of the, uh, fun realization while we were building it is like, okay, you have your, your right hand on the mouse. Most, most people being right-handed. Um, and, uh, the other, the left hand's on the keyboard. And so you can access a, a bunch of the frequently used wireframing elephant, uh, elements, um, excuse me, from the shortcut keys. And so, um, that was, um, yeah, one of those moments where it was like, I think this could be a way to make it faster and easier to use. And um, so um, we, you know, map them to the left hand a lot. And I think another thing that enabled this was um, we, instead of creating one master toolbar inside of one board that could do everything, we kind of separated out the use cases. Um, so it was like, you're either in flowchart mode or wireframe mode. And, um, one of the things that let us do was have more tailored keyboard shortcuts, um, which was, um, important for that. Fantastic. And as the founder, what are your favorite details behind whimsical that maybe an average person doesn't notice? That's a fun question. Um, a couple of people have noticed this, and I always love it when they do. Um, one detail that I really personally enjoy is when um, you create a button in wireframes um, and you go to add an icon for the button. We automatically search for whatever text you had entered for the button, and we pre-populate the, um, the icons. So a lot of times it's just like staring you in the face. And so, you know, if you're not like really paying attention, it, it just like, oh, it kind of works. But then when you're like, wait, what just happened? Um, it feels sort of like magic. Um, so that that's a really fun one for me. That's a cute detail. That's really cute. Yeah. Um, the other thing I think I would say is, um, and we did this way back in the beginning and haven't done anything to it since, but um, the upgrade confirmation screen or like mm -hmm. right after you press the like pay button, um, we do this cool like geometric explosion of shapes and it says like woohoo and you know it's just like this fun thing that we put together i i did the animation in after effects and then we used um the lottie plugin to bring it to life um but that's that's also um a fun moment in the mm, app you're like celebrating that upgrade moment yeah yeah right that's really cool uh if you were to design whimsical again from scratch what might you change um Honestly, the first thing that comes to mind for me is something we uh, ironically have not 
completely fixed, but um, it's uh, the way that we do, and this is kind of in the minutia of the app, but um, the way that we do the uh, free plan where you put boards in the trash and you know it, you have like a quota of four free boards um it's just like sort of confusing how that works and we've had like so many people reach out about it and it's in something that we've meant to to improve and make more intuitive but you, you kind of find some of those rough edges and and people just like pound you on it it's like <laughs> like just unrelenting yes unrelenting day after day after day and <laughs> they, they don't make, notice the button but they just <laughs> All they care about is that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. So that I think we would have thought a little bit harder about it, getting it right the first time. But um, yeah. I think thankfully um, a lot of the major decisions we made we probably stick with and um, been pretty happy with. Hmm. And uh, final like uh, question from uh, the other designers in my network: uh, What do you wish you'd had known before you'd started out? Hmm. Well, I definitely listened to a fair number of podcasts and read a decent number of books about starting up and, you know, mentioned the, the Paul Graham essays, which were extremely helpful. And um, so I don't think there's a huge number of like massive surprises, but um, one of the things that has been apparent as we've been going about building Whimsical is that you just really learn as you go. And you don't have to have everything, everything figured out or everything perfect. Um, and you just get going. And um, I know that there's a wide range of experiences that, that entrepreneurs have. But for me, it's been such a rewarding and rich experience. And I wouldn't trade it for anything. It's been so awesome. And... So I'm just glad that it was like made the, the jump and just kind of go and do it. And so mm. that's, yeah, I think you just, you just go and you make it happen. And figure it out along the way. Absolutely. Mm. And looking to the future, uh, how do you keep your vision alive now that you're working with a team and thinking about the future, uh, as you may or may not scale, like, um, how do you really keep that as the thing that drives the business forward? Hmm. Um, I think that, you know, going back to that craftsmanship model of, of doing work, um, we thought about that for sure with hiring. Um, for instance, the most recent person that joined us, who's this amazing, amazing guy, amazing engineer. Um, I literally thought about everybody I had worked with like in the past and I applied that. I was like, who, who would be the most ideal person to join us? And amazing. It, it was incredible that the, the, the timing actually worked out and, and, and everything went through. But, um, I, so I, I do think hiring is a big part of um, kind of continuing the vision and bringing the right people that like share the same interests and values and, and want to do some of the same cool things. Um, and uh, honestly, something as simple as just having a weekly lunch with, um, with Casper's where we can just kind of process things and chat about, you know, 
new ideas and how's that going and what could that, what could we do there? And, um, so th- those, those moments are cool. And, um, he's actually, Casper's is moving to Latvia, um, soon. So those will be a little bit harder and a little, you know, farther in between, but, um, yeah, I think I point to those, those lunches as being a big part of keeping the vision alive. Fantastic. Um, so in terms of your journey, you started off doing drawing classes and you moved through to painting. Uh, you had a, an internship. Uh, you've tried to um, get into an accelerator program. Uh, you've built this company. It's become profitable. Now, um, given where you're at, what are the things when it comes to design that you really care about? some of the things that we've tried to to build into whimsical come to mind um so what do i care about with regards to design something that um is simple and beautiful something that communicates clearly um or that allows other people to communicate clearly um i think that has been a really rewarding part of whimsical is that you're kind of giving the tools to people and saying here, like go and, and do, do things and, and, um, design them and build them and, and collaborate on them. Um, so, um, kind of empowering other people to, to use the tools that we're, that we're building is, um, like a really cool part of design right now. For me, mm. and we haven't really covered it up until this moment. But um, what is your vision for Whimsical? Hmm. Well, I, I've probably alluded to it because I I think um, when I think about my vision for Whimsical, it's just create the best product and the best company that's ever existed. Um, I kind of come back to that, and again, like not in a prideful way, not not like so much for us, but, um, create that tool that people love and a company that, that is here for, for years and years and, um, like a, a sort of a generational company and, um, everything within that like craftsmanship mindset. And if we can do those things, like, or even just aspire toward them, then I'll be like really proud and happy. Hmm. Great. And, um, just kind of wrapping up, what advice would you give to a, a, another young designer founder like yourself? I think the biggest thing I would say is to find a really solid co-founder or co-founders, um, people who have the skills but have the integrity and the grit and um, a collaborative spirit that you can riff off of. I think that has been so vital to us um kind of this thing like working out and um there's so many steps along the way where you have to trust each other you have to um uh both be just kind of getting things done on your side of 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 it and um pushing forward and um and working together. And, and so I think finding that right person is 
the first big step and, and really kind of the, the important one that carries you through. Mm -hmm. So we're like really creating a team. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And finally, um, where can people learn more about you and where can they learn more about Whimsical? Yeah, I think Twitter and our blog are great ways to, to stay up with Whimsical. I can definitely um, uh, verify that the blog's got some great stories about like how you've overcome some challenges and some of the details that you've kind of explored through the company. It's some of the research that I've personally done uh, for this podcast. So I think it's a great um, uh, piece of content for anyone that's curious about like building product, building companies. Yeah, thanks so much. I'm hoping that mm. we can put some more um, writing out there um, mm. and uh, kind of document the journey as we go. Fin- Fantastic. Well, Steve, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me, share your insights about growing Whimsical, design at Whimsical. It's been a fascinating conversation for me. I hope people listening got some value out of it. Um, Yeah, I just wanted to say thank you so much, man. It's been such a pleasure. Yeah, thank you, Mike. Loved it. Hey there, it's Mike again. Thank you for listening this far. Now... Uh, At the very start of this episode, I promised you a surprise. And you might have heard Steve from Whimsical mention this concept of ShapeUp a few times throughout the conversation. Well, ShapeUp's a process that a growing number of product teams around the world are using to think deeper about the right problems and to start making more meaningful projects. The Whimsical team have been using ShapeUp for a while in their workflow and have actually broken it down into a mind map that you can access for free at whimsical.com forward slash ShapeUp. That link again is whimsical.com forward slash ShapeUp. The mind map is a really great entry point into the concepts of shaping, bedding, and building, and it all links out directly to the chapters of ShapeUp on Basecamp.com. The mind map will also give you a really great overview into the power of Whimsical, which I can't recommend enough. Please check that out. Well, this has been huge, but everything good must come to an end. If you liked this episode and want to hear more, you can get the goods on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast network or listening app. Thank you for listening. Until next time, this is Mike signing off. Mm -hmm.